This week begins the annual celebration of the Jewish holiday of Passover. If you've celebrated Passover before, you know that around the dining tables of Jewish families and their friends all over the world, a familiar story will be retold. The story of the Exodus, the liberation of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. There are many reasons to tell the Exodus story. It reminds us of the horrors of the past. It inspires us by letting us know that liberation is possible. It comforts us with the notion of a God who would take the side of the enslaved and the oppressed. For Jewish people, it also becomes a foundation for moral behavior. In the Hebrew scriptures of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it is clear, clearly indicated that the memory of slavery in Egypt and the commitment of God to the liberation of the Hebrew people are to be used to understand why it is important to follow the laws, instructions, and customs that supposedly come from God. For once we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt is a common refrain throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Political philosopher Michael Walzer writes, much of the moral code of the Torah is explained and defended in opposition to Egyptian cruelty. The Israelites are commanded to act justly, which is to say, not as the Egyptians acted. And the motive of their action is to be the memory of the injustice their ancestors suffered in Egypt and which they suffer again through the remembering in the Egypt of their minds. The laws of Leviticus go so far as to proclaim that if you have resident aliens in your country, you will not molest them. You will treat resident aliens as they were native born and love them as yourself, for you were once aliens in Egypt. If this is the lesson that is learned from retelling the story of the Exodus, then it must be told. It must be heard again and again. But the Exodus story also has complications. For one, it's a violent story. Many people have serious misgivings about seeing God as so angry on behalf of his people that he would murder the firstborn sons of the people of Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people go. Many people have serious doubts about a God that would drown the pursuing army in the waters of the Red Sea. Flies and frogs are one thing, but murder to many crosses a line. Some people I know base their rejection of the notion of God on this story and others like it that tell of a violent, angry, vengeful deity. We are right to be bothered by this violence. We are right to reject violence unless it is absolutely necessary to prevent future harm. What has bothered me more lately though, as I reread these scriptures with the group here that has been engaging in Unitarian Universalist Bible study with me, is that the story of bondage in Egypt and the narrative that follows it in the Hebrew scriptures reinforce the notion that those who own the land get to make the rules on it. Now, this isn't a notion limited to those for whom the Hebrew scriptures are important religious instruction. 
It's not a bad idea, only in the heads of Jews and Christians. Surely, systems giving, of giving power to an elite set of people who then get to oppress others in their land are endemic in many human cultures all around the world. But I find any theological justification for perpetuating such a system to be abhorrent. It's possible to hear the story of the Exodus and conclude that slavery is simply wrong, that the oppression of any people for the benefit of another is not to be tolerated. And while this might be an appropriate modern lesson, it wasn't the one that was intended in ancient times. Instead of warning against slave owning, the text was meant to warn against treating your slaves badly. The books of Exodus and Leviticus both set out rules for slave owners. Here is the text in Leviticus chapter 25, where it reads, the male and female slaves you have will come from the nations around you. For these, from these, you may purchase male and female slaves. As slaves, you may also purchase the children of aliens resident among you and also members of their families living with you who have been born on your soil, and they will become your property, and you may leave them as a legacy to your sons after you as their perpetual possession. And the stories that follow the Exodus are stories in which the Hebrew people are given permission to go into the land of Canaan and take the land for themselves, to found the nation of Israel there. Never mind that there were Canaanites already there. They were instructed by priests who claimed that those instructions came directly from God, that the land was theirs, that the Canaanites were wicked and meant to be slaughtered reads in Deuteronomy, but as regards to the towns of those people whom Yahweh your God is giving you as your heritage, you must not spare the life of any living thing. It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, which continues, instead you must lay them under the curse of destruction, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded, so they may not teach you to do all the detestable things which they do to honor their gods. According to Deuteronomy, the land was theirs by proclamation of God, and no other law, no laws requiring empathy or compassion or justice could be invoked to stop the genocide that the priests ordered to happen. The theological justification with which the ancient Hebrew people claimed the land of Canaan has been replicated again and again in our history. Europeans used it to invade and colonize most of the world. Americans used it to justify the slaughter of the indigenous people of this continent. Great economic powers in this day have it in mind when they perpetuate neo-colonialism around the world. It was wrong in 1200 BCE. It was wrong in 1492. It is wrong today. 
It is wrong in the United States of America, where those whose ancestors have monopolized power for centuries are now forming hate groups and throwing bricks through the windows of congresspeople in order to take their country back. I want to say, it's not yours, it's ours our country, yours and mine, and we get to disagree and to settle those disagreements through democratic means, not by violence. It's wrong in Nigeria, where Christians are killing Muslims in retaliation for the Muslims having killed Christians, and the Muslims are then killing Christians in retaliation for that. It's wrong. It's wrong in Israel where thousands of years of history must be overcome to create a peace in which all people are valued. I will admit, I was more than a little bit nervous bringing up the topic of violence in the Middle East, especially in a sermon on an important Jewish holiday. It's a subject that never fails to stir passionate feelings and opinions, passionate feelings and opinions that are often at complete odds with one another. I hope today to walk the fine line of insisting that peace is possible without taking either side in today's conflict, a position sure to anger people on both sides, I know. And yet, with each news story letting us know that more Jewish settlements are being built on disputed land, that more Palestinians are being forced from their homes, and yes, that more bombs are being aimed at the people of Israel, I just want to scream, this is wrong. The land is not yours. It's not theirs either, for that matter. There has to be another solution. There has to be another way. I believe that other way requires a different theology from the one at work on both sides in the dispute raging in the Middle East. It requires dispensing with a theology that God has proclaimed the land to belong to one people or the other. I know that's a hard thing to do. Both the Israelites and the Palestinians have been taught for centuries, perhaps millennia, that their God gave them their land. And further, both the Israelites and the Palestinians have been taught that whoever owns the land gets to make the rules. Whoever owns the land gets to oppress those who don't own it, to kick them out of their homes, to build walls around them, to shoot rockets, to point guns and throw rocks at them. I can guarantee for you that God is not going to settle this dispute for anyone. People are going to have to do it. For many decades now, people have tried to make peace in the lands of Israel and Palestine by arguing over borders, the lines that divide yours from mine, one side's from another, I argue today that no intricate boundary drawing is going to help. As far as I can see, it will take an understanding that the land belongs to neither side, or rather that the land belongs to both peoples and they're going to have to learn to share it. The Jewish people deserve to live in their ancient homeland. So do the Palestinian people that it is the same ancient homeland, 
means that at some point, someone will have to say, enough of this yours and mine. Let's talk about ours. That will take a different theology than the ones at work now in that part of the world. As Unitarian Universalists, we understand what it is to have a theology in which we are not the anointed people of God, in which no deity has ever promised us special treatment. We understand what it is to have a theology that proclaims that a justice-centered future is possible, but that it is ours to create. Our theology rejects the intervention of a supernatural being into our midst and instead magnifies the power of all humans to build the world we dream about, whether our hands are doing the work of the divine or the work of our own imagination. We understand what it is to have a theology based in relationships that bridge disagreements and differences but do we understand where that theology calls on us to participate in making peace? In June, delegates to our annual Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, myself included, will vote on whether to adopt language of what is called a statement of conscience entitled peacemaking. Donna read from us the current draft of the first state section of that statement. These statements, these statements of conscience are not meant to be authoritative or prescriptive for the individual Unitarian Universalist, but rather they are meant to guide our associational work together and to inspire individuals and congregations to certain ideals. The statement on peacemaking encourages each of us and the congregations we are a part of to be engaged in the work of making peace in our homes, in our relationships, in our communities, in our nation, and our world. The statement calls each of us to summon the courage to speak and act against violence and injustice, and also to understand our own complicity in systems that perpetuate violence, intolerance, and hate. In June, I will have an opportunity to cast a vote on your behalf as your called minister, I am an automatic delegate to the assembly. We can send up to three more people if we so choose. As additional delegates, they will get to vote your conscience as well. And once we get to the general assembly in Minneapolis, those of us designated your delegates will have to decide if that statement on peacemaking represents the conscience of this congregation. I hope to be able to vote yes. I hope that the statement that comes before the delegates in June is one that connects our Unitarian Universalist religious outlook to call us each to create peace in our world, to call us to raise our voices against violence and injustice wherever it is found, even when it's not popular, maybe especially when it's not popular to call us to insist on a new way, a way found by learning the lessons of history, to call us to help others see that a new way is possible if the swords of war are laid down in the name of peace. Maybe then, the texts of the world's religions can be read as calls to find our common humanity, 
instead of delineations of our ingrained differences. Maybe then, the old songs of violence, intolerance, bloodshed, and hatred can be the songs of history and not the songs of our present day. Maybe then, a new story can be written for all of us, a story of peace. May it be so.